Now, it was uh, 2011 when Coldplay released that song we just heard, Paradise. And I can tell by the look on some of your faces, you're like, cold who? Uh, And I'm sorry for your lack of experience in the world of great music. But hopefully, if you do know great music, you know that Coldplay is one one of the great bands of our time. But in 2011, Coldplay released the song, Paradise. And and since that time, it's become one of their greatest hits. Uh, And I think, uh, unless something's changed just recently in the past few weeks, it's their third biggest hit uh, among a long list of their songs that have become hits. Uh, And like so many songs out there in the music world, uh, the lyrics to that song, Paradise, uh, are very much up to interpretation. The only things we can know are what the authors say they meant by the words they wrote, and then also what we can read for ourselves. But when you read the words and when you listen to what the songwriter said about the song, uh, the song seems to be about losing heart and losing hope. Uh, Because everybody here knows a little bit about losing heart and about losing hope. And, you know, as you know, if you want a song to connect, you just write about what people can connect to. So losing heart and losing hope, that's something that all of us, we can relate to. It also seems to tell a familiar story about how life can be hard and about how making right choices can be difficult. And, And we all know that that's true. Life can be hard and making the right choices when life is hard can be very difficult. Uh, when you listen to the song and, and you pay attention to the lyrics and you may have to read them you know, a couple of different times, it, it's a story about a life that didn't go according to plan. And maybe you can latch onto an idea like that, that you had a plan for life and your life, it hasn't worked out according to plan. This is not the way it was supposed to look. It, it's a story of missteps, missed opportunities and irrevocable regret. Uh, It's a life that wants better, desires better, you know, just dreams of better, but but that's as far as it can go because reality is just so difficult. Thus the idea of paradise. And so in the song, you know, paradise becomes a place of escape. It's a place that is safe from the harsh realities of life. Uh, Paradise in the song and paradise in basically all of our imagination, it's it's a place where we get away from the pain. It's a place where we get away from the disappointments. It's a place where we escape the failure or the regret or the betrayal and all the other little thorns that life can stab us with along the way. And that's, that's the song. But beyond that song, uh, in literature and in religious circles, the idea of paradise uh, is a compelling metaphor. And, and you come across it quite often in, in old literature, uh, even, even modern literature to some extent, but certainly in, in religious writings and religious jargon uh, and religious vernacular. Uh, paradise is a compelling, compelling metaphor uh, that carries with it a, a transcendent imagery to it. Uh, and, and it's transcendent to culture. Uh, because different cultures, they talk about paradise. Uh, It's transcendent in the sense of generation and time and space. So one generation has an idea of paradise, another generation could have a very similar idea of paradise. And and that powerful imagery, which comes from that compelling metaphor, it results in a very powerful emotion. It's powerfully emotional to think about paradise, to imagine it, to read about it, to to sing about it. And, And the reason that it's so connective Uh, in its theme. And the reason it's so compelling in in its emotional architecture is because every one of us, every single one of us human beings, we well know, unfortunately, the miseries that can be life. We can know it firsthand. We've all got our stories, right? You got yours, I've got mine. 
Uh, some of our stories uh, would probably yield more tears than others, but we've all got stories. And so we know it firsthand, but we also know second and third hand. Somebody that we know, they've gone through hell and they told us about it. And because we love them or connected to them, we could feel a little bit of their pain. Or somebody took a pain from halfway across the world and because they were able to tell that story in such a compelling way, it brought that pain from halfway around the world and it put it in our face and it deposited it in our heart. And it just got so personally close to it. So all of us know, that life can be hard. All of us know that at times life can be brutal, that life can sucker punch you in a moment. And if life doesn't sucker punch you, it may just stand in front of you and kick your teeth out. That's life. It can be unfair, it can be difficult, it can be hard. Life can deal you a very bad hand and it be no fault of your own. Have you ever been out and, you know, I, I, I hate to even use this illustration, but I just feel like we've all been there and done that. And, and we're out and we see some little kids and, and they're with a family and, and we make a judgment call and, and maybe we shouldn't even do that, but we make a judgment call based on, you know, any numbers of factors and we think to ourselves, and maybe it's just me, but maybe you have once upon a time and you look at those little kids and you think, I don't know if they've got a chance. I don't know if they've got a chance. It just seems like life has dealt them such a very difficult hand. And that's life. And sometimes it's not your fault and sometimes it's not my fault and sometimes it's not their fault. Life just dealt a hand that it would be difficult for any of us to play with. That's life. There's, there's disappointment, there's betrayal, there's pain. There's all of that. But on the other hand, because I don't wanna be a Debbie Downer, and I don't know why we always say Debbie Downer. Why don't we say Donald Downer? I don't wanna be a Donald Downer. You know, let's, let's be friendly to both sides. I don't wanna be a Donald Downer, but, but let's think about the other side. There's lots of good in life, right? There's lots of good things in life. There's friends, there's family, there's good times, there's good food, there's laughs, there's love, there's adventure, there's new discoveries and new you know, experiences. There's all of that. There, there's goodness and beauty. There, there's change and growth and maturity. And, and all of those things can be great parts of life. But again, I don't, I don't wanna be negative. I, I'm just letting you know why the idea of paradise is so important. At the same time that life can be so good, the dark side of life can show up in a moment and derail the good. Life can show up in a moment and turn your life sideways. You didn't have it on the calendar. <laughs> you didn't prepare for it. You didn't plan for it. You couldn't. And that's why the idea of paradise is so compelling and so attractive. Because the idea of paradise is this, it's where good goes uninterrupted. That's paradise. It's where good is not interrupted. It's where tragedies don't happen. It's where there are no regrets. There are no disappointments. There's, there's none of that stuff. There's, there's no hell of our own creation or no hell of somebody else's creation that they have you know, thrusted upon us. It's a place of goodness and wholeness and, and beauty. And virtually every religion has an idea of paradise or, or some idea of what we would maybe call heaven or the afterlife. Uh, the ancient Greeks, the ancient Egyptians, the ancient Persians, the, the Celtics, you know, even today, not, not the Boston Celtics, uh, but you know, the ancient Celtics, you know, they had ideas about the afterlife, uh, even Hinduism and Islam and, and Buddhists. Everybody has this idea of like this, this, this paradise type reality or what comes next. But for us Christians, we take our cues 
from Jesus. And Jesus was very clear in his teaching that there is such a thing as life after death. I mean, he, he was maybe not clear on some things, but one thing that Jesus was absolutely clear on was, hey, there is such a thing as life after death. And, and the New Testament teaches us that we are to look forward with hope because one day there's gonna be a remade heaven and a remade earth and it's gonna be a physical material universe and we are gonna live in it with physical material bodies. We're not gonna live as ghosts forever because you know, what fun is there in that? But we're gonna have physical material bodies living in a physical material remade universe and it's gonna be a place of no death, no disease, no disappointment, no injustice. There's gonna be no death. There's gonna be no pain, no betrayal, no disappointment, no temptation, no ending to anything good, no ending to anything beautiful, no endings to anything good. And so Christians, we look forward to what we could call paradise, what we look forward to as the new heaven and the new earth, what we would say, we look forward to heaven, we look forward to the new world to come. But here's where Christianity parts from all other religions. All other religions has and continue to say, hey, if you wanna go to paradise after you die, if you wanna go to heaven after you die, if you wanna have life after death, then here's where all other religions agree and this is where they start. They would say, hey, there's work to do. There's work to do. You got work to do. You gotta be good, you gotta do good. There's gonna be some religious hoops you need to jump through. There's gonna be some ceremonies you need to participate in. There's gonna be a creed that you need to recite, a certain set of beliefs that you need to adhere to, maybe a sacrifice that you need to make. You're gonna have to adopt a certain code of behavior. You're just gonna have to be good enough. You've got work to do, you gotta be good enough. And religion never tells you how good is good enough because you know, to live in limbo keeps you a slave of religion. And, and when you don't know how good is good enough, you're a slave to that religious system. And while you're a slave to that religious system, your soul suffocates and it chokes out any sense of peace and joy because you have no assurance about where you stand with God. You never know whether you're in or you're out or you're good or you're not good or whether God's pleased with you or God, is he angry with me? Or, or, or the worst thought yet, has God just actually given up on me finally? Is he just fed up? Has he washed his hands? Has he gotten to the end of his rope? A am I just, and you never know. So your soul just suffocates and there's no joy. There's no peace in that. And you're, you're just a slave. So there's work to do. I gotta be better. I gotta do more. I gotta be better. I gotta do more. I gotta do better. I gotta do more. And the only hope that you have of the world to come, the only hope that you have of the idea of paradise, reality, of life after death, is just a hope so, maybe so, fingers crossed, stand on one leg, do whatever I gotta do. I'm just, I'm just hoping, I don't know, I'm just hoping. Probably not, but maybe. And that's every other religion in the world. Every single one. Christianity though, takes a very different position. Christianity says, if you want life after death, Christianity says, if you want to enjoy the new world to come, if you want to enjoy eternity that could only be described maybe as paradise in a way that you could never imagine or think, Christianity says, the work is done. Because that's the gospel, that's the good news. The gospel says, there's no hoops for you to jump through. There's no hoops for me to jump through. The gospel, the good news is, there's no sacrifices that you or me or we have to make because Jesus is the final sacrifice for sin. So there's no sacrifices that you have to make to get in. 
There's no ceremonies you have to participate in. There's no creeds you have to recite. There's no act of morality that you have to practice. There's nothing that you have to do. There's nothing, matter of fact, that you can do in order to be right with God. There's nothing that you have to do. There's nothing that you can do in order to be right with God because God himself, in the plot twist of all plot twists, God himself has done what is necessary through his son, Jesus of Nazareth. So the work is done. There's no boxes to check. There's no good work for you to have to do in order to be good with God because there's a cross and there's an empty tomb that are forever reminders that you and I can be right with God, not because of what we must do for God, but because of what God has already done for us. And that's good news. And you say, well, what does that mean? Well, as far as heaven goes, it means that good people don't go to heaven. So what? It's kind of how I grew up, good people. I thought the good people go to heaven, you know. All the hellions, they go to hell, and don't they party and listen to Hank? And you know, if heaven ain't a lot like Dixie, I just thought that all the good people went to heaven. Yeah, it's gonna be a little boring, a little bit of a drag, but you know, it's cooler there. So, you know, if I can get in, I'll get in. It's for the good people, it's the church people. It means good people don't go to heaven. It means forgiven people go to heaven. Paradise isn't a place within the Christian thought that's a place for good people or moral people or sweet people or kind people or Republican people or Democrat people or people who believe this about that and not this about that. It's not for church attenders. It's not for religious people. It's, it's, it's not. It's for people who have been forgiven. It's for people who have been rescued. It's for people who have been saved, changed by the grace of of God. Let's all just say that together. The grace of God. That, that's, that's, who's heaven, that's who heaven is for. That's who paradise is for. It's for those who have been forgiven by the grace of God. And in the scripture, you know what kind of grace we find that, that comes from God? A grace that has no strings attached. Unconditional. Think about that. We say those words and we don't even flip and think about them. Unconditional. No conditions attached to it. It's unlimited grace. Grace that knows no bounds. You know what that means? You can't out sin the grace of God. Now, I am not encouraging you to try, but you can't out sin the grace of God. The grace of God can't be earned, it can't be bought, it can't be bargained for, and it's free to those who don't deserve it. That's the grace of God. It's a grace that has no loopholes, no fine print, no expiration date, no exemptions, no exceptions. That's the grace of God. It's a grace that is greater than your greatest sin. Now, I want you to think about it for a moment. You may not want to think about it. It may be too painful to think about. It may be too emotional to think about, but I want you to think about it for just a moment. I want you to think about what would be your greatest sin? What is it? What is that greatest thing that you're so embarrassed about and shamed about and that thing you wouldn't want anybody to ever know and that thing you just, oh my God, you carry it with you so often and you've asked forgiveness for it a million times. Think of it, God's grace is greater than our greatest sin. He's bigger than what you can think of. He's bigger than what you can lay out there on the table. 
God's grace is greater than our greatest weakness. It's greater than our greatest struggle. It's greater than our greatest, our worst moment. That's God's grace. And it's God's grace that offers us the hope of a better life in this life and eternal life in life after this life. Now, John, who was an apostle of Jesus who, who wrote you know, the Gospel of John, a biography, and he, he's trying to tell the world who Jesus is. And when he thinks about you know, how do I describe Jesus? Uh, matter of fact, I think it is my favorite descriptor. Maybe besides Matthew's descriptor that Jesus was a friend of sinners. I think, I think this is right there. This rivals, you know, my favorite uh, description of Jesus from one uh, of the gospel writers. And this is how John defined Jesus. This is how he painted a picture of him. He says, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. And we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father full of there's the word, grace, and full of truth. He, he says, the word became flesh. God became flesh. God became a man. And it was like God said, hey, you stay where you are. I'm coming to help. Don't move. Don't, don't run away. Don't try to do it yourself. Don't move. You ever had to do that with your kid? They get themselves in a pickle, and, and you just look at them and say, don't move. Don't move. I'm coming to help. Don't take a step. Don't do anything, I'm coming to help. That's what John said, that's, that's what the incarnation, when Jesus came, it was like God saying, hey, don't move, I'm coming to help. I'm coming to show you what God is like. And John said we had a front row seat to see what God was like through his son, Jesus of Nazareth. And we had a front row seat to watch and, and to listen and to process his words, to watch his actions and his mannerisms and his disposition and, and, and we, we heard the tone of his voice and, and we saw the look in his eye and, and, and we had time to process it. And I've had time to think about it. And I'm telling you the, the best way I know to put it to words is that he was full of grace, he was full of truth. Not the balance of, of grace and truth, but he was the embodiment of grace and truth. He was uncompromised, unapologetic truth while at the same time being unconditional, unrestrained grace. He says, it's almost even difficult to put it into words, but I was there, I heard it and I watched it. He was, he was full of uncompromised truth. He never compromised the truth and he never placed conditions or restraints on grace. He never let truth get in the way of grace. Easy to do. It's easy to do parenting. It's easier to do in a relationship. It's easy to do in a friendship. It's easy to do in interactions. It's easy. I just told him the truth. Well, praise God. That's awesome. Congratulations. They just needed to hear the truth. I'll tell you, I just told them the truth. I did. I told them the truth. I, I just, somebody had to. Really? And we think of the truth. Sometimes truth gets in the way of grace. But he never let truth get in the way of grace. And he never let grace get in the way of truth. And, and somebody says, well, you need to make a big point about that. Listen, I know Christians. I watch us on social. I listen to us on the news. I hear a lot of us Christians talking. I'm telling you what most of us aren't struggling with. We're not struggling with letting grace get in the way of truth. Many of us, we just struggle with letting truth get in the way of grace. But Jesus, Jesus, he never let truth get in the way of grace. He never let grace get in the way of truth. And John said, we heard it when he taught. We saw it in his interactions. We watched him hate sin and love sinners. And he hated the sin because what the sin was doing to the sinner. He called sinners, sinners. And then we watched him die 
for sinners. He called sinners, sinners, and then we watched him die for sinners and pay for their sin. He was full of grace and full of truth. And I think John, I think Matthew, I think Mark, I think Luke, I I think the original disciples, the original followers of Jesus, I I think if we pay attention to what they said and what they wrote, there's some things, some really useful things that we can learn about the grace of God that I think are really important. I think when you read through the gospels, I think John would say this. I I think if John had the microphone today, he said, let me tell you, when I watch Jesus, when I watch those interactions, when I listen to the sermons, I'll tell you what I've learned. I've learned that the grace of God is scandalous. It's controversial. Let me tell you why a lot of people have had problems with our church in years past. The grace of God. The grace of God is scandalous. You show people grace, you extend people love, you show people forgiveness, you give a second and a third and a fourth and a fifth and a sixth chance, it gets to be a little scandalous. It gets to be a little controversial. People get to talk and religious people don't like it. It makes people uneasy. Because grace is not intuitive. Grace is not natural. It's not personality driven. We're in a doggy, doggy, doggy world. We're, we're in a pull up, you know, your, you know, your boots by your own bootstraps and live your own life and, you know, pay your way and, you know, you get what you earn and, and all of those things which are drilled into us, you make your own way, you break it, you pay for it, it's your responsibility, all those things. And there's nothing wrong with a lot of those things, but, but the grace of God, the grace of God, it cuts against some of those things. And it, it makes us just, it causes us to scratch our head. We got all kinds of questions. Well, what about this? And what about when that happens? And you know, well, when does this? And, and what does that mean for that? And the grace of God, it was just a scandal. And Jesus was a scandal everywhere he went. Maybe John would think of the day that Jesus met a leper. And a leper, you, you weren't allowed to come near a leper. And a leper, more importantly, was not allowed to come near people. Lepers were not allowed to come near the temple. They were not allowed to come near religious people, holy people, righteous people, you know, obedient people. And here's a leper that had nobody else to turn to. Have you ever felt that way? I mean, seriously, have you ever been in a place where you had nobody to turn to? with what was going on in your life. There was nobody to talk to, nobody to trust. That was that guy. He had no freedom to go to the temple, no freedom to go to his religious leaders, no freedom to turn to anybody, but you know who he felt freedom to turn to? Jesus. And there's something to think about there. There's something to learn in that. That we live in a world where lots of people feel like they have nowhere to turn. And they certainly have nowhere to turn to find grace. And I fear that they don't even consider the church. He knew for whatever reason that he could turn to Jesus and he did. And here's a man who's untouchable, who feels unlovable, who's been deemed unclean, who has been publicly uninvited to his religion. And what does Jesus do? When the guy comes up to him and says, hey, are you willing to make me whole? What does Jesus do? Jesus broke ranks. Jesus crossed religious lines. Jesus ignored social protocols. He shattered cultural norms and religious traditions. And you know what Jesus did? He touched the man. And everybody took a breath. And he healed him. At his own risk, he touched him. 
at the risk of being called unclean and unholy himself, he touched him. And what was unthinkable became unforgettable in the life of that man. And it was scandalous because that's not what you did. And that's not how those things were handled. That's not the way the temple did it. That's not how the religious leaders do it. It was a scandal. Maybe John would tell us about the day a centurion, a Roman soldier showed up, a man of authority, a man who had soldiers underneath him. And in the minds of Jewish people, we read this, we hear this, we've, we've heard this, many of us our whole lives, and it just doesn't mean anything to us. But this was the enemy. This was the occupying force. This was the invading army. And they've just set up shop and now they're in control. He's a centurion, Roman soldier. These are the people in the minds of the Jewish people who are responsible for so much suffering and so much death. And a centurion comes up to Jesus and says, somebody on my staff is sick and they're gonna die if you don't intervene. And Jesus says, hey, what? You, you, you want me to come to your house and heal him? And, and the centurion looks at Jesus. You remember this? He says, oh, no, 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 no. No, no, you don't need to come to my house. I, I am not even worthy for you to step inside my house. But I do believe that if you just speak the word, I believe you can heal him. And you remember what Jesus did? Jesus turned around to all of his Jewish people that were there watching because they couldn't believe what was happening in this moment. Here is a Roman centurion, the enemy, the problem. This is the problem they've been praying that God would eradicate. And the problem they've been praying that God would eradicate walks up to Jesus and Jesus turns around to them and says, I'll tell you, I've not found such great faith in all of the house of Israel. I've not found such great faith among the people of God, the apple of his eye, the descendants of Abraham. I've not found such great faith anywhere in Israel. And then Jesus, what he said next, you talk about scandal. Jesus looked at those people and said, one day I'm gonna tell you, they're gonna come from the north and the south and the east and the west. They're gonna come from the four corners of the earth and they're gonna sit down with Abraham, Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of God. And everybody's thinking, what? Did he just say what I thought he said? And what Jesus said was nothing short of revolutionary and was certainly nothing short of offensive to many in the audience that day. These Gentiles, they were known as dogs. That's all they were, dogs. You weren't allowed to eat with them, do business with them. You weren't to interact with them. You were holy, they're not. You're righteous, they're not. You're in, they're not. And all of a sudden Jesus says that somebody like this Roman centurion is gonna be in the kingdom of God one day. A guy who doesn't, he doesn't study the Pentateuch. He doesn't adhere to the laws of Moses. He doesn't go to the temple and offer sacrifices. He's not Jewish. And Jesus says he's gonna be in the kingdom of God one day. And people just said, I don't know about that. This doesn't feel right. And I will take a moment to remind you, just because it doesn't feel right, doesn't mean that it's not right. Well, it doesn't feel true, doesn't mean that it's not true. And just because it's uncomfortable, doesn't mean that it also can't be true at the same time. And it was uncomfortable for them. They're gonna come from all over and sit down in the kingdom. It was kind of scandalous. 
I'm sure John could tell you about Matthew. You know, he spent a lot of time with Matthew, the tax collector. Matthew, who was scum, trash, traitor, canceled by his culture. Talk about cancel culture, he was canceled. Rabbis taught there were no hope for tax collectors, that basically God didn't love them and religious people weren't allowed to be around them and they were the epitome of what was unclean and unholy. They were an abomination. Yes, sir. They were the big A, abomination. You know, it's getting bad when that word comes out. I mean, there's sinners, but then there's abomination. And these tax collectors, they were an abomination to God. They were an abomination to the nation. They were an abomination to the temple. They were unholy, unclean, unloved. And it, that's how they were. They'd been disowned by their family, by their faith, by their nation. <laughs> you didn't touch them. You didn't trust them to do business with. They weren't allowed to testify in court. And then Jesus walks up one day to Matthew, a tax collector and says, follow me. And some people in the crowd are thinking, does he know? Have you told him? Maybe he doesn't know. He's a tax collector. Because surely if Jesus knew, he wouldn't have walked up to the guy and said, hey, follow me. I, I want you to be part of my crowd. I want you to be part of my circle. Follow me. And it was a scandal. I, I could John would tell us, he did tell us in John 4 about the woman at the well. You remember that story? One day Jesus, he needed to go to Galilee, but he decided to go through Samaria. And the thing about it was nobody went through Samaria to go to Galilee. Certainly not a good Jew because Samaria, it was just, you go through Samaria, you're definitely gonna get sin on you. Sin Clorox won't remove type of sin. You know what I'm talking about? They were hated, they were called half-breeds. There was a long history of hatred and prejudice against the Samaritans going all the way back centuries before deeply embedded within those cultures. If you sat down in a seat where a Samaritan had, had been sitting, you got sin on you. And there he is, Jesus moving towards this woman, moving towards this hated woman, this mess of a woman. And he's there at high noon and there's, there she is. She, she should have came early morning because I'm telling you, I just got back from there. High noon. It's hotter than where you wanna spend eternity. It's hot. And so she's there, but why is she there in the middle of the day? Because she's tired of everybody looking at her. She's tired of everybody whispering behind her back. She's tired of all the looks of judgment and condemnation. And what does Jesus do? He talks to her, he breaks all the rules. Jesus is talking to this, not only just a woman, but a Samaritan woman. And he asks her for a drink of water and he's willing to drink it out of her cup. <gasps> what? He risked being seen with her. He risked the innuendo. He risked the rumor. He risked it all. He risked what it might do to his reputation or what people may say, oh my God, look how unclean he is now. And here he is talking to her and she's thinking, I've never had a man talk to me this way before. And then Jesus, it kind of gets, you know, a little awkward. He says, okay, you know, I've got some water for you. And she was like, well, you're, begging, you're asking me for water. What kind of water you got? I got water that will satisfy every longing in your soul. Would you like some living water? Of course, <laughs> yes. He said, well, go get your husband. She says, I don't have a husband. He said, you're right. You got five. And the one you're with right now, he's not one of them. You know what you call that in the Greek? Awkward. 
it's awkward. More awkward than me being awkward, not talking fast enough for you in that moment. It's like, what? And then this conversation goes on and she goes, I know the Messiah is coming. And then Jesus, he says, I am he. And she left and she told everybody, come meet a man who told me everything about me. And I don't think I'll ever be the same. The grace of God's scandalous. Every single one of those was a scandal in the making. I think John would tell us the grace of God isn't fair. And I, you know, these stories you know, and I, I, I gotta hurry. You're not listening fast enough. And he tells the story of a prodigal. Cashes out his inheritance, goes, spends it all, gets himself in trouble, gets to the bottom of the barrel, gets to the pig pen, comes back home, and what does the father do? Gives him a ring, gives him a robe, and gives him sandals. Makes him a son again. All the while, an elder brother never left. Fair? No. Equitable? No. Equal treatment? Mmm. Grace? Yes. Jesus tells a story about a shepherd who left 99 sheep to go after one sorry sucker who was too stupid to stay where he needed to be. Jesus didn't tell it exactly like that. It's in the Aramaic version. And he leaves the 99 to go get the one. Was it fair for the 99? No. Was it grace for the one? Mm. Yeah. Jesus tells the story about a man who racked up so much debt. I mean, like millions and millions and so much debt. There was no hope that he could ever pay it back. No hope that he could ever work it off. He couldn't liquidate. There, there's nothing that he could ever do to pay back this impossibly large sum of money. But there was a king that he owed the money to who said, all right, I forgive your debt. You don't have to pay it back. A bailout. A bailout. Of all things, a bailout. Fair? Mm, no. Do we like that kind of thing? Mm, not really. He's out there spending money he can't pay back. I'm over here living between you know, the means, trying to have some margin, and he just gets, he gets it forgiven? Is that, is that how it works? Just do whatever you want to do, live however you want to do, and forgiven? Fair? No. Grace? Yeah. I think John would tell us that the grace of God is unconditional. He said, I, there's never strings attached. It was just, it was boundless. I was there that day that Jesus was at the temple and he was there early in the morning teaching and all of a sudden they brought this woman and, and she looked scattered, she was tattered, she was torn, she was startled, she was fearful and she was frightened half to death and she'd been caught in the act of adultery. Caught in the act of adultery. And again, I say this every time I tell this story because I think about it every time I tell this story. Where is he at? Probably running away like a penguin with his pants at his ankles. I don't know how he got away in a moment quite like that. Some of you don't get the penguin. You'll think of it later and it'll be like, I got it. It's like, how did he get away? And they bring this guilty woman who was caught in the act. Can you, caught in the act, 
throw her, they throw her down at Jesus. They've all got stones and they said, hey, the law of Moses, the Bible, the scripture says that this woman's supposed to be stoned. What say you, Jesus? And Jesus said, I say that let the one who has no sin throw the first stone. And the irony of that moment, it's one of my favorite stories, was that there was only one person there without a stone. And he was the only one there without sin. And Jesus kneels down and begins to write on the ground. And nobody knows what he wrote. But in just a moment, they started walking away, the oldest to the youngest. And Jesus, he kneels down and he looks at the woman and he says, woman, where are your accusers? And she says, no man, Lord, there's none. And he says, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. I want you, don't miss this. You're guilty, but I don't condemn you. That, that gives me goosebumps. You're guilty, but I don't condemn you. It's unconditional. And then I think the last thing, the grace of God is both breathtaking and life-giving. And I think John would tell us this one last story because he was there that day at Golgotha, there at Calvary, at the place where Jesus was executed. It was the place where the grace of God perhaps was never more breathtaking and never more life-giving in one single moment. And Luke writes about it. But John was there and, and Luke says this, he says, two other men, both criminals, were also led out with Jesus to be executed. Some say they were desert thieves, career murderers and, and thieves. We don't, we don't know their names. Church tradition gives us a couple of names, but we can't be sure. But, but in all likelihood, they've been criminals for most of their life. And even criminals don't ever plan to end up here. The most seasoned, hardened criminals, they didn't, they didn't in the early years ever plan to waste their lives. Yet these two criminals, their lives have been derailed by their own choices. Don't miss that. By their own choices, their lives have been derailed. Moments of isolated failure over time became a pattern that eventually wove itself into a lifestyle. They are lifestyle criminals. And perhaps maybe of no fault of their own. Maybe they were dealt one of those tough hands. Maybe they had terrible parents. Maybe they had no parents. Maybe that was the way their parents lived. Maybe they had no help, no example. Maybe they were steered in this direction or maybe they knew better. Maybe they had a good mom and a good dad and maybe they were taught what was right and what was wrong, but they just did the wrong thing anyway because that happens as well. But either way, does it matter? They're here. And in this moment, the shrapnel of all of their choices and perhaps they're thinking about the wake of suffering that their own lives and choices have created, not only for them, but maybe for other people, or maybe they don't. Maybe their hearts are so hardened and so cold and so callous, the only thing that they're thinking about is just this moment and how they can get away. Maybe they could care less. Maybe there's people there in the crowd that their lives have been forever altered because of these two criminals. And maybe they're there cheering for justice or maybe there's nobody in the crowd who gives 
one ounce of care about the execution of two men like this. This was their day of reckoning. This was the day they were getting what they deserved. It says, when they came to the place of the skull, they crucified him there, along with the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And while they're hanging there, Luke records that Jesus said, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they're doing. Talking about the people who are crucifying Jesus. Father, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing. And they divided his clothes up by casting lots. And it's like, who says such a thing like this in a moment like this? And these thieves, they can't help but hear that. They can't help but notice that. They're listening, they're watching, and here's a guy in the middle, and in the midst of all of this blood and all this horror and all that goes with the crucifixion, all three hanging there naked in front of the crowds that are just watching, he says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And for one of the thieves, it seems like maybe they're taking just a little bit of it in. They're absorbing just a little bit of what they're hearing and what they're seeing. And here on the day of Jesus' crucifixion, we see the worst of humanity's sin, but we also see the best of God's grace. It says the people stood watching and the rulers even sneered at him. They said, he saved others, let him save himself. He is God's Messiah, the chosen one. The soldiers also came up and mocked him. They offered him wine and vinegar and said, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him and said, aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God? He said, don't you fear God? Since you are under the same sentence, we are punished justly. For we are getting what our deeds deserves, but this man in the middle has done nothing wrong. In other words, Hey, why are you talking like that? If there's a heaven, and if heaven is reserved for good people, and righteous people, and moral people, and holy people, and nice people, if the kingdom of God is for those who get it right and do it right, who don't screw up and don't fall short, we don't have a shot. We don't have a chance. Get off the back of this guy. And in this moment, the only chance of this thief, it wasn't doing better. It wasn't, it wasn't paying penance. It wasn't turning over a new leaf because what kind of leaf can you turn over? It wasn't behavior modification. That wasn't his hope. It wasn't rededication. And in that moment, that one thief, the only chance that he had, the only chance that he had was grace. And in that moment of desperation, in that moment, he throws himself upon the grace of God and he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. I've heard about you. I've been watching. I've been listening. That whole father forgive them. It kind of stuck with me. I believe you're going somewhere I'm not. You're a king and you're gonna step into your kingdom. And I know I won't be there. But as futile as it may seem in this moment, as useless as it may be in this moment, because I have no time to do anything for you. I have no time. I have no time for remember me. I have no opportunity to do better. I have nothing to bargain with, nothing to barter with. There's no deal that I can strike with you. Just remember me when you come into your kingdom. 
And then Jesus said to him, truly I tell you, today, you will be with me in paradise. He answered the thief, not with you're getting what you deserve, not with you don't deserve to be heard, He answered with grace and he said, today you will be with me in paradise. Today. Today. And in this moment, that man's past, his worst moments, the worst decisions of his life, the most shameful acts, the pain he felt, the pain he caused, his missteps, his regret, his sin in that moment. It gave way to grace. Every failure, it gave way to grace. Every moment of weakness and struggle, it gave way to grace. Every act of injustice that he carried out, it gave way to grace. All those moments that he said, I'm gonna do better, but he didn't, it gave way to grace. All those moments that he said, I'm never gonna do it again, but he did. It gave way to grace. All the secret shame, all the guilt, all the emptiness, all the loneliness, all the anger, all the unforgiveness, all the stuff, all the junk. In that moment, it gave way to grace. A man who couldn't rededicate. A man who had no time for baptism, no time to receive communion, no time to make a sacrifice, no time to go do a good deed. He could not bargain his way in. He could not buy a good standing with God. But in that moment, he got what he needed most. He got grace. Because somewhere underneath the shame of that moment, there was a flicker of faith, an invisibly small seed of faith that believed that Jesus was who he claimed to be. Was it an act of desperation? Did he have nothing to lose? Sure, yes. But did he receive grace anyway? No doubt about it. Was it fair? No. Was it grace? Yes. Is it what he deserved? Was the cross what he deserved? Yeah. Today with me in paradise, is that what he deserved? No. Was it grace? man condemned by men in that moment was forgiven and pardoned by God. And Jesus said, you're going to step into the same paradise as Peter, James, John, my mom, and Billy Graham. To which the thief would say, who? Billy who? Just making sure you're listening. I love this story and I'll, I'll end it here. Alistair Begg tells an imaginative story about when the thief gets to heaven and he's greeted at heaven. And the welcome committee says, hey, aren't you that cousin criminal from Judea? Aren't you that guy kind of just, you've lived like hell and you've, you've wreaked hell in the lives of, aren't you that guy? Hey, uh, did you get baptized? No, 
Did, did you take communion? No? Well, how'd you get here? I don't know. Hold on. Supervisor comes over and says, hold on. How'd you get here? I don't know. What do you mean you don't know? I don't know. Are you telling me you don't know anything about the theology of justification by faith? The, ju- the what? No. You, you don't know anything about the sufficiency of scripture? No. Then how did you get here? Because the man on the middle cross told me I could. And perhaps that's the moment when Jesus said, he's with me. That's grace. That's the criminal story. And I'm here to tell you, it is my story. Because when I step from this life to the next, when they say, how did you get here? It won't have anything to do with me. It'll simply be the man on the middle cross told me I could. And maybe a voice from the other side of the crowd will say, I know, it's shocking. It's a bit surprising. He's with me. Heavenly Father, no wonder they call it amazing and marvelous. It's breathtaking, it's life-giving, and it's our only hope, your grace, for life in this life and life beyond this life. Our heads are bowed, our eyes are closed at all of our churches. If you're here and you've never received the gift of God's grace, if you're here and you've never placed your trust in Jesus, you're worried you're not good enough, you're worried that you don't know enough, you're worried that there's something you need to do, something you need to stop doing. And it's held you back. And somebody told you once upon a time, there was a hoop to jump through there. You couldn't do this and and be in. I'm here to tell you, you were lied to. It's only by the grace of God. And maybe you're here today and you would be like that thief and like all the other thieves that are around you that we threw ourselves upon the grace of God. And maybe in this moment, you would pray a prayer like this, just where you are. You don't have to pray it out loud, but in your heart, Heavenly Father, you know I'm a sinner. I know I'm a sinner. But Father, thank you for being a friend to sinners. Thank you for offering forgiveness, full and free. Thank you for doing the work. And I receive your gift of grace, what I do not deserve, what I cannot earn, what I cannot pay back. I receive your gift of grace today by faith.